0: Well, if you got your Bibles, I want you to open up to uh, Exodus, I'm sorry, not Exodus, Genesis chapter 16. And last week we began a series that we called Our Forever God. Forever because as we just sang in the song, you are the same God. You know, we look throughout the scriptures. If you open up this book, you'll realize that there's a recurring, unchanging theme that's in there. And that is, God always remains the same. God is forever the same. He declared through the prophet Malachi, for I, the Lord, do not change. While Isaiah was prophesying and affirming, he said this, that uh, the Lord is the everlasting God. James describes him as the everlasting father who gives good gifts, the father of heavenly lights in whom there is no variation, shifting of shadows. There is no change. He is our God that remains eternal, consistent, and forever. Somebody say amen. All that he was is all that he remains to be. You know, so like we sang in that song, if he spoke back then, he's speaking now. If he healed back then, he's a healer today. If he was providing at one point, he still provides today. And so that is the the premise of our series here. And who doesn't want to latch on to and hold on to a God that if he cared for man once, he still cares for me today? Who doesn't want to latch on to that belief and hold on to that reality and say, that is for me. He is the same. But yet, how quickly does that thought, that reality evaporate from our minds when tragedy strikes? How quickly does it fade from our view when, you know, crisis comes into our homes and and sorrows grip us? How quickly do we allow hope to escape us? And we are left with this feeling, the feeling of being invisible. Anybody ever feel invisible? Don't be bashful. You ever felt invisible? Like you could be having a conversation with somebody and they're not even there in front of you anymore. They don't even see you. Like you just said something and they are not even connecting with what you said, acknowledging what you said invisible you could be living in the same home as that other person sharing the same bed but yet they don't know your struggle your pain your needs your desires you feel invisible you are at your job and getting passed up again and again you where who could does anybody see me you know i was reading in uh, this one kid who was part of a military family uh the family that in the military they're they're really well known for when the orders come you got to get up and go and it's it, there's It's going to happen. It's happening quick. So this little boy, you know, he heard that his his dad was going to be redeployed and they were going to have to shift gears and go somewhere else. And so the family starts packing up the bags and all that kind of stuff. Kid goes to school and the plan is after school they're going to leave. And then the little boy comes home. When he goes to open the front door, the door is locked. He goes to the back door. The back door is locked. He goes over to the side of the house. He sees that there's a window that's left unlocked. So he jumps into the house. And as he's walking through the house, he realizes that there is not a thing inside the house. It's barren. There's nothing in the kitchen, nothing in the living room, nothing in his bedroom. His parents' room is empty. And so the little boy goes and crawls out the window, feeling lost and dejected, saying, wow, this thing about moving quickly really is the case. And my parents have forgotten me. And yet his parents decided that while the kid was at school that they would get the jump on the move. And so they started clearing everything out. And they parked their car and was waiting for him by the bus. And yet they missed the kid. So now they see him coming out of the house feeling all disappointed and dejected that his parents have forgotten him. There's many of us who've gotten aware of that feeling. We feel invisible at times. We go through situations in life and difficulties, and so we feel like we are overlooked, passed up, not seen. If you've ever felt that, just say amen. Yet, God in his glory and his infinite wisdom and understanding, he gives us this passage. He shows us of a person who also felt invisible, a person who also felt like she was forgotten evaporated from view, completely faded out from somebody else's perspective. And so I want you to take a look here at Genesis chapter 16 and we want to look at this. And as we go through her story, my prayer is this, that as we go through the series, as we go through each week and we understand how our forever God is a God that remains the same. I want us to let go of our doubts and I want us to latch on and, and, and enhance and affirm our faith in Jesus Christ and our Lord and Savior in God the Father who is forever the same and continues to challenge us to believe him and see him in the midst of our circumstances. Amen? And so this morning, Genesis 16, let's look at verse one. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Great idea. Wow, awesome. Let's invite someone else into the marriage bed. All right, Abram agreed to what Sarai said. There's a whole sermon right there, but we'll move on. So after Abram had been lived, living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrongdoing I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Let's pray. Father, may your word just speak truth in our lives. I know that this life is complex. There's such incredible highs and such devastating lows. And Lord, I pray that as we journey through this life, that you would help us to have our eyes fixed on you, to see you in the journey. Lord, encamp your Holy Spirit around our hearts, that we may, Lord God, glean what you want us to glean. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There's a lot we could cover in this passage, in this text. And there's a lot of, you know, important names and characters here. There's, there's a drama that's going to unfold here between a couple of key people in the scriptures. But one thing that I find incredible here is this one woman, Hagar. You know, there's Abram, there's Sarai, there's angels, there's, there's all of these things that are going to ensue in the passage. But yet, I find this woman, Hagar, and I can't help but wonder that she is a woman that's feeling invisible. A woman that is feeling completely overlooked. I imagine her reflecting as she's fleeing from Sarai. She's imagining, Can nobody see me? What about my feelings, my ambitions, my dreams, my hopes, my future? What about me? You know, has there ever been a conversation with me about decisions that were going to be made about me, concerning me, around me? What about me? Am I just a pawn in someone else's story? Will things ever change in my circumstance? Is this what I'm relegated to? Is this what my life will be like? What about me? Can you imagine her in this situation? And for a moment there, it seems like things are about to change for her because, you know, this little girl who's, who's a slave girl, a girl who's a, who's a servant, I don't know how she came to become under the employ of, of Abram and Sarai, we don't know. We don't know that if after le- leaving Egypt uh, she was uh, given to them to, to be a you know, a slave and, and take care of them in that situation. We don't know where it is. We don't know where in Abram's uh, travels he picked her up. We don't know. But we know that here's this girl. And now all of a sudden, Sarai comes up with a plan and she says, hey, go, Abram, take this servant of mine, this maid servant of mine, and, and, and maybe this way things can change. You know, it looks like her circumstance is about to, to shift a little bit. According to the custom of the day, Abram does follow through, and he takes um, Hagar to produce a child on behalf of his barren wife. But in doing so, uh, Hagar does not take over the place of status of the wife. She is simply a surrogate, and that was common practice within that ancient Near East culture. And keep in mind here that this whole thing begins with Sarai's request. Now, I'm not trying to, um, you know, throw any stones here. And so please don't throw any at me, please. Um, She asked for this. She invited this. She put this plan into action. And so things happened. You know, Abram should have said no. Abram should have objected just like Adam should have objected in the garden. So don't, you know, listen to this and say, oh, it's all her fault. Uh, It takes two to tango here. He follows through. He, fo- he follows in accordance to the custom of the land, and he goes and does this. You know, at Sarai's request, Abram follows through. It had been 10 long years since the promise of a child had come. God had spoken to Abram and said, you're going to be the father of many nations. Through you, the whole world shall be blessed. And there's going to be a wonderful and powerful descendant and ancestry and line and lineage. There's going to be a blessing upon blessing. My covenant is with you. And so Sarai is looking at 10 years. Man, 10 years we have waited. 10 years nothing's happened. When Abram got that message, he was 75 years old. I'm advancing my years. It's been 10 years. And in the back of her mind, I wonder if she could have been thinking about the, the, the Jewish law and acceptance and the common you know, reality of the world around her, which is expressed in some of the Judaic teachings. That 10 years of barrenness was grounds for divorce. Maybe she's thinking of all these things, and yet she, she goes and she puts her own plan into action. Church, just, just on a side note, sometimes we create our own problems, don't we? I found that you know, as I've walked and journeyed with the Lord, sometimes there's things that I say, oh man, the devil is just wreaking havoc in my life, and God will check me and say, no, you did this. No, 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 you did this. Why are you frustrated that this person isn't paying you back? You're the one who lent them the money. Or for those of us who are now getting the calls and saying, hey, please pay us back. You know, uh, loan forgiveness is only $10,000 according to the administration plans and what's happened recently, right? Uh, Everything else beyond that, come on, pay it back. And we're like, oh, man, these creditors don't stop chasing me. Well, why did you borrow it? You made the choice. (laughs) Now you got to deal with the consequence, right? So sometimes we make our own beds and now we have to go and lay in them. So stop assigning, you know, credit to the devil and making him more powerful than he is when we, in fact, actually walked right into the disaster. It's important for us to realize that. So, but that is a whole other subject. Here's the deal. It's been 10 years. All of a sudden, this plan comes through. I doubt that Abraham was thinking about maybe divorcing Sarai at this point, but yet he goes along. All right. He goes along with the plan. And now something that should have brought solution and solved a problem is only the beginnings of which. Hagar realizes that she's conceived a child. She begins, verse 4, to despise her mistress. She begins to put on this air of superiority. She begins to see, hey, I am a slave girl, young, but I'm fertile. And look at her, my master. She is old. She is barren. Although she is free, she ain't got what I got. She's not giving to him what I can give him. And she started... To flare up some feelings that were not right and she started to mistreat her master and so sarai does the human thing which is very easy for us to do sometimes fight fire with fire and she starts to mistreat her maidservant and although the specific form of affliction is unknown, the Bible doesn't tell us how she did it or what she did. Was it verbal abuse? Was it physical abuse? We don't know. Did, did she you know, make her do extra chores where everybody else didn't do? Did she you know, uh, withhold things from her that others you know, had? We don't know what it is, but we just know that in this moment, the woman who had to be the, the, the mother of an incredible generation, the one who was given the promise of a covenant, begins to act outside of her station. And she does not do the right thing. How many of us have found that Christians sometimes don't act the way that they should? It's very sad that Sarai started mistreating her servant. It it doesn't matter that the servant instigated it. But Sarai started mistreating her servant. Abram said, look, you gave her to me. You wanted to solve a problem. She is not mine. Okay? She was your maidservant. You deal with her. You, you, see, you do what is, is best, and Sarai did what was wrong. She mistreated her. Nowhere in this story is this a justification for us to mistreat people. She was doing the wrong thing. And so things got so bad, so difficult, that Hagar said, I've got to get out of here. I've got to get out from underneath her rule, underneath her, 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 her influence. I have to get out of here because she is just mistreating me. Imagine her confusion. As she is leaving, I, I wonder when did she flee? You know, did she pack her bags secretly? Did she try to, you know, store up some, some reserves? I don't know. Maybe she fled in the middle of the night. And so maybe her reserves, her stores, well, her, her resources would have been low. Uh, imagine this little girl leaving this, this young servant girl leaving pregnant, all alone, uh, leaving the place of covering, the place of her employee, the place where she lives. And she's going out into the desert in the direction of her homeland. We know in the Bible, when we read the story that she is from Egypt, and so she heads out into the wilderness on the way back home. And I wonder, confused, lost, concerned, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my child? Am I going to get home and my family going to receive me? Do I even have family back home still? What has happened? I don't know how long it's been and, and, and what's transpired since she's left. Are they going to have the, the, the supplies and the, the ability to afford to sustain me and help me in this? There's all of these questions floating in her mind and all of this worry and strife, all of this tension and anxiety. anxiety and it's there and she is fleeing she feels like it's best for her to go and step out and awaiting her out in the wilderness is a rugged terrain she's risking her life and the life of her child awaiting her out there is harsh elements awaiting her out there could be nomadic traders that could jump on her and 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 jump her and and abuse her and you know sell her and all these other things could have happened to her she might not even make it to egypt and that's the context That we pick up verse 7. Look with me. Verse 7. Then the angel of the Lord found Hagar. Somebody say amen. Then the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road of Shur. And she said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Would you look at that? Would you look at that? The forever speaking God, like we covered last week, is also a forever seeing God. A God who sees a slave girl on the backside of a desert. A girl that has no renown and name and prestige. A girl that is invisible. He saw this young, confused, mistreated, desperate, fugitive slave girl in the middle of a desert. Can somebody say amen? Hagar, heartened and awe by this encounter. The angel goes on and tells her a specific prophecy. But look at verse 13. After she sees the, the, the angel of the Lord and she hears the word the angel says, this is what she says. You are, she renames the Lord. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who who sees me? I've seen Elroy. She renames God Elroy, the God who sees, the God of my seeing, the God who has seen me. I have seen him and he has seen me, and yet I still remain. Friend, if you've ever felt invisible, if you've ever felt like you faded out of view, like you have been completely overlooked, let me just tell you there's a God whose name is Elroy. The God who sees me. The God who watches over me. He has not passed you up. He has not forgotten you. He sees your pain, your yearning, your desires. He sees where you're at. He sees where you're going. He sees you. And because he sees you, you can see his mercy. Amen. Because God sees us, we can experience his mercy. Check this out. When he shows up, the angel of the Lord who is a representative of God, who oftentimes, like we said last week, is a theophany where the Lord appears. Um, It might even be a Christophany where Jesus Christ appears, the pre-incarnate Christ appears before his coming in the New Testament. He appears to man and shows up in the flesh. She sees the Lord. And I like how verse 8 says, and he said, Hagar. Church, this God who is our forever seeing God He sees you personally. Can can somebody just say that real quick to themselves? Just let that wash over you. He sees me personally. When he shows up, the first words out of his mouth is not, hey, you over there. Hey, you slave girl. Hey, you miss. Excuse me, pardon me. The first word, Hagar. He calls her by name. We see this again and again throughout the scriptures. When God calls out to his people, he calls people out often by their name. He sees us personally right there. He's, you know, and, and stop and think about this. I often try to make contact, you know, eye contact with you guys when I'm preaching. And these lights are really bright and sometimes I can't see. I got to focus a little bit and things starts to calibrate. Then I can finally see the, the, the basic outline of your heads and your faces and all the wonderful clothes you're wearing, and how good looking you guys look. But here's the deal. If I try to do that with everybody, I have to stop and do that one by one. I got to look at you, Lori. Then you, Mark. Then I got to look at you. May. I got to look at each one of you one by one. But yet when God sees us, he sees all of us at the same time. See, stop and think about this. God who has everything under his control, who's, you know, um, telling the waves where and how far they should go. The one who's appointed the stars and called them by name and assigned a name to each and every one of them who sees everything, who holds everything in his control. He's able to phase out And blot out all these other things. And when he sees, he sees each and every one of us individually at that moment. And he gives us his 100 undivided attention. I got to see you one by one, but he sees us all at once. He sees us completely and fully. He can see us in the middle of the sea of everything that is happening in the world. Everything that he is appointing of leaders and the setting up of nations and the bringing down of nations. And all of the things that he's governing within the, the realm of science and the, and the natural laws of the world and universe. He is able to look past all of that and see you personally. I see you in your struggle. I see how it's been, this and that, and what's going on. He sees us personally. But beyond that, I love it how it tells us in the word that his eyes saw our unformed substance. He knows us. God has memorized your name. He knows your number. God knows every detail about you, which leads us to the next thing, where God calls out to her in verse eight, and he said, Hagar, Hagar, Slave of Sarai. See, when God speaks, it might as well be that we're the only person in the room. We're the only person in all of creation because that's the type of attention he gives us. But when he comes and he encounters us, he sees us. He sees us perfectly. Our forever God sees you perfectly. Calling her by name was just the beginning. God reveals that he sees so much more, so much more when he sees and contemplates us. He says, hey, Hagar, I not only know your name, but I know where you live. I know where you're coming from. And it's funny that he goes on to ask the question, where are you going? Where did you come from? Whenever God, I've said this before, whenever God asks us a question, it's not that he's trying to ascertain information, is that he's trying to arrest our attention. God is trying to get us to recalibrate, to reconsider, to, to look at something that is important for us. There's a lesson coming up in the end of the question. God has something he wants us to understand. And so he says, hey, Hagar, I know that you're a slave. In fact, I know the very house. So not only are you a slave, and oh, wow, I could have guessed that because so many people in this world, in this time, in this region are. No, hey, I know where you serve, the house of Sarai, and by extension, her husband, Abram. Hey, Hagar, I know what has happened. I know where you've come from. I know what's going on. See, when God sees us, he does not just see what we're wearing. He doesn't look and say, hey, nice shirt today, PB. That's an untucked shirt. Oh, good, nice, awesome, good job. He doesn't just see the, you know, what we're doing in the moment. Hey, you're standing there, what are you doing? Hey, you're sitting down over here. What's going on? He doesn't just see the expression that's on our face, the emotion that can be registered as if we were to take a picture. No, God sees us completely, entirely, and without and within, he sees it all at the same time. That word implies an absolute sight. I like what uh, A.W. Tozer wrote when he was speaking about God's omniscience. You know, because God sees everything, God can know everything. You know, if you were to see everything and see how everything works and see how everything came to be and be there when everything transpired, then you can be said to know everything. He says this, God knows instantly and effortlessly, all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all things visible and invisible in heaven and on earth. God sees it all. Now stop and somebody said, thank you, Jesus. And I'd say, yeah, how comforting is it to know? That the God who sees me, Elroy, sees everything. It's comforting because that means that my God has seen all of my afflictions. Yeah. He's seen all of my pain. Isn't there a passage in the scripture that says that He bottles up our tears? Yeah. He sees all of our afflictions and sorrows. He sees when everybody is putting on their best behavior. When you finally speak up and say something about the injustice that you have encountered and everyone else puts on their agreed upon best behavior and they cover up that which they have done, he sees you there. He sees you when no one else is coming about for you. He sees you when everybody else has overlooked you. He sees you in the middle of your afflictions because he knows not just what you're wearing, but he knows everything you're thinking and everything that's inside of you and every pain, every sorrow, every unfulfilled dream, every issue. He sees it all. And he can identify with it. People around you may not understand But there's a God in heaven who knows and walks the path. He understands what you're going through. It's what Job encountered. You know, our God, he is where he is. He's around you. He knows exactly where you're going, what's on the other side of the road, what's around the bend. He sees that. He understands. And since he knows, he's able to help us like no other person can help us. Yes, some people know us, but no one knows us like our Lord knows us. Amen? We don't even know ourselves to the full extent in which he knows us because we can't perceive the the motivation. And we might mask it up and talk about how, oh, I did this because of this. Yet he goes and he sees the underlying motive behind even that decision and course of action. He sees it all. He knows the pain, he knows the sorrow, he cares about you. He's able to give you peace in your valley as it talks about in Philippians chapter four. He's able to work through your situation and bring about the best conclusion like Paul said in Romans eight, God sees it all and he brings joy out of our dark night. He's able to see it all. And as you contemplate this and you go through this life, there's a God who knows me personally but a God who knows me perfectly. It gives us incredible hope incredible peace that he's there for us and he knows all things. Our forever God also sees us persistently. When she finally realizes, God, you've said this, you've spoken this over me, and wow, I, I find it incredible that she, in that moment, didn't give God any other words other than she decides to give God a new name. She praises God in the middle of her situation. When God tells her what to do and tells her through the angel what's going to happen and transpire to her, she starts praising God and she says, the God who sees me. See, that word see, that's a present tense word. She did not marvel at the fact that, wow, God saw me by the road in the desert. God saw me in the moment that Sarai did this and that. No, she said, God sees me. Active tense. Today, right now, in this moment, continuously. He sees me persistently. He didn't have enough vision and view that he one day got to see you. You know, there's these moments that, that are happening, you know, um, little, little milestones that we go through, right? We all go through milestones in our life when we progress, we grow, we, we learn how to walk, and that's a milestone. And, you know, sometimes it's very hard for parents when a child has to go to daycare or is with a family member or a loved one, and all of a sudden that child takes the first step and mom or dad were not, was not there to see it, right? Hopefully... That wasn't your case, but hey, sometimes it happens. And we're like, oh, I wish I was there to see that moment, to, to be there and, and to be able to see that. But well, we are limited in what we can see and where we can see and how long we can see. There's gonna come a point in time when our kids are gonna leave the house and they're gonna go, you're not gonna be able to see everything that they're going through, yet God sees us persistently. This is a God who sees us at every milestone, and he sees us at every failure. He sees us at every situation, and his ability to see does not diminish over time. Why? Because our God is unchanging. See, when we sometimes ascribe these, these um, anthropomorphistic ideas to God, which means we ascribe human characteristics to God, that he sees us. You know, we know that in the Bible it tells us in Luke chapter 4 that he is spirit, and those who worship him should worship in spirit and in truth. God does not have a body like us. Jesus came in the flesh, and so he's identified with us in having a body like it. But God the Father, he is a spirit, right? And so when we ascribe this ability that he can do things that human beings do, like seeing, like speaking. We also ascribe to him these negative connotations that just like us, he's going to somehow also, he he can get as good as we get. And then he's also going to get as bad as we get. As we progress through life, some of us, we start, you know, losing a little bit of our ability to see. And so we start thinking that God's going to have the same. No, God can see us the same like he saw us yesterday, today, and forevermore. His vision is not going to grow dim. He does not have to have cataract surgery or or glaucoma or this or whatever. He's not going to have any issues with his vision. He sees us at every single time, perfectly and consistently. He always sees. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. How different is our God from us? Amen? Amen how we watch over ourselves, right? We, we put on our best effort, we put on our best um, characteristics while everybody else is watching. Yet God is a God who sees persistently while everyone's watching and when everyone is not. When the lights go out and everybody wo- goes away, when we're all alone and by ourselves, God still sees us. And hey, that should be an encouragement to so many. You know, to know that, hey, there is a God who sees you when you are putting everything forth and you're doing your best and you're trying your hardest, but then he also sees you in that moment that you drop the ball. How awesome is it that there is no tattletale that can show up in the world, no person that can come and say, hey, look at what this person has done. They can't bring up past accusations and issues and say to your God, hey, look at this, look what she did, look at this egregious thing and this egregious sin and this terrible decision and that poor attitude and look at the words that they thought in their minds they can't come out bringing out skeletons out of your closet and say lord look at this person our god who sees us persistently says yeah i know and i've seen that and my love for you remains the same my love for you remains everlasting the same. It has not changed. How many of us need to hear that? Because you know what? Last week was rough. Uh, you know what? I, I decided that I wasn't gonna do this thing with God anymore and I decided to go do this my way. I said, God, you're taking too long to show me your ways. You're, doing, you're not doing it the way that I would want. So I took matters into my own hands like Sarai did and now I've made a mess of my life or I've made an issue of my life. There is no amount of, of knowing or uncovering or exposing that somebody could do to bring up that issue, the enemy might say to you, look what you did. You are a terrible person. You can never earn or experience God's love. You're never gonna get past this. Yet God says, I've already seen that. And I love you with an everlasting love. Love. And I've chosen you exactly as you are. And I've called you by name. I know you personally. I know why you chose to do that. And I know how to get you out of that. I know I see everything that needs to be righted within your heart so that you don't make that choice once more. Now, for those of us who have something to hide, it's a terrifying thought that God can see us persistently, perfectly, and personally. It's a terrifying thought to know that God knows something. It's like... You know, almost a lot of movies have this same motif in it, where there's, you know, the protagonist rides a wave of temporary success when they are deceiving somebody. You know, I think about Aladdin. I'm watching kids' movies recently, right, and listening to kids' songs. So in the car, I was thinking about Aladdin this week driving as Micah is, you know, just singing out the songs in the car. Um, Aladdin. He experienced this temporary, you know, success with Jasmine. He's, he's, you know, putting on this air of being a prince, and yet he's a pauper. He's a, a guy who, who lives on the streets, who steals, and, and he does not fit the part, and yet he meets this beautiful princess, and through a wish from a genie, all right? This is not theological. This is, we don't believe in genies, okay? But hey, it's a kid's movie, all right? Just follow me for a second. All of a sudden, he goes and he starts putting on this air, this appearance of being a person, that is not who he is. And that fear of her finding out. The fear of, of Jafar, the bad guy, exposing him and, utilizing, and twisting him to, to get what he wants so he doesn't lose what he was going to get. There's this, you know, feeling that if we have something to hide, we should not feel comfortable with a God who's able to see everything. But again, I tell you, even knowing that you don't fit the part, even knowing that you might not be the one, that you don't have it all together, he still loves you with an everlasting love because he sees it all and he still cares for you. Jesus Christ, while we were yet sinners, died for us, pursued us with an everlasting love, amen? Man cannot hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. That's what he says in Jeremiah 23. The fact that he's always watching should bring us to the realization, why am I running? Why am I trying to hide? The invitation that I see in this passage is so many things, but one of the, the major things that I want us to just focus and wrap our time up in is the fact that because God sees us, he's a forever seeing God who knows us personally, perfectly, and persistently. We gotta look at what he said to Hagar. He invites us to do something very important. When she was fleeing her mistress, the angel says to her in verse nine, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Because our God sees us fully, continuously, perfectly, He's inviting us to submit to his will. He's inviting us to submit to what he has in store for us as a person to what we decided is good for us. He has some lessons he wants us to learn in the midst of this life that we go through. He wants us to hear, and then when we hear that word, go back, Ah, Lord, but you don't know. You don't know how I was abused and mistreated. You don't know, Lord God, everything I had to deal with. You don't know how tough it is for me to keep my Christian witness in that space. You don't understand, Lord God, all of the things that are not going right. You don't get it. Yes, I do. I see it all. Yet I'm calling you to be faithful, to submit first. How many of us have come to understand that, you know, the order of blessing when it comes to God. It's not, I'll bless you first, then you submit to me. It's submit first and then. Seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and then these things shall be added on to you. There's that, that idea that we submit first. Obedience is required First. And then comes his blessing. Then comes his promise. Hey, Hagar, go back to the place that you're running from. Hey, Hagar, go back to that space and I will do something with you. I love the fact that at that moment, she renames God, the God who sees me. She has a praise break in the middle of her desert and she starts glorifying God in that moment, praising him for what he will do. Imagine her going back and knocking on the door and saying, hey, I'm back here. Uh, Why are you here? Why did you leave? What's going on? You you know, you're going to be punished for running away. All of these things. She just goes back. And God had a plan for her. And I, I love this because I see sometimes, you know, um, when people start going through, we make decisions in our lives. And we, you know, ascribe um, to certain things. We subscribe to certain things. We, we sign on to certain things. And then things get difficult in our lives. And when they get difficult in our lives, you know, how many times are we tempted to give up and run away? To give up and stop doing that. To not be able to do this and continue. How often uh, does somebody, you know, in love in the honeymoon stage say, you know what? This is going to be awesome. Marriage is this and that, whatever. And then they get into the marriage and life gets difficult. and, And God starts breaking down our independence. And starts realizing, helping us realize that life is, you know, marriage is preferring your spouse over yourself. is taking care of someone else's needs before your own. It is loving and being a model of how Jesus loved the church, that he gave himself up for it. And then we're like, you know what, it's getting too tough. It's getting too difficult. She, he doesn't see me. She doesn't see me. The tears that I'm crying, the, the unfulfilled expectations, you're not fulfilling my needs, all of these things. And the going gets tough and the decision is I want to run. That word divorce is thrown around. How many, you know what, when the going gets tough and the kids start talking back and the teenagers start saying, you know what, no, I want my way instead of your way, dad. It's it's this that I want to pursue for my life as opposed to that which you wanted me to pursue and the things start getting difficult and there's that temptation to just say, I'm going to let go and let them do whatever they want and I'm not going to be involved and parent and do the hard work that is needed. There's a giving up. You can apply this in so many different ways. See, the reality is there's some people who won't grow because God has a plan to teach them in the place where they're running from, in what they're running, the situations that he's put in there for their training, to build up their character, to build up their their, uh, opportunities and their witness. You know what? They go and seek counsel. Hey, I, I wanna learn, I wanna grow in this. And then when the counsel gets given, they say, you know what? I'm switching my counselors. I'm looking for a new therapist that's going to line up to what I want to hear and what I want to say and where I want to go and what I want to do. Or maybe we join a church. Nobody here's ever done that, right? We've never joined a church just because our previous church didn't tell us what we wanted to hear. Nobody's done that. God wants her to go back the place and I love it because God is saying to her so Hagar go back you're a single mom you're a slave girl you have no station in life you have no family here you're all alone in the wilderness you got a child to 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 raise up you got a kid that's going to be you know in your future there is a promise there's a destiny for you and you are in the desert doing this all by go back to the place of your provision because it's not going to be here it's going to be back there And God has this plan for us. Now, this is not a a, a message to say that God doesn't take us and in seasons do things. There's a time and a season for everything. But this is a message for us that we see difficult moments. And then we say, you know what, God, I'm just going to pack it up and go. God is wanting to say to us, look, where are you going? Where did you come from? I already know I have that answer, but I want you to contemplate it because there's a lesson for you here. See, her provision was back home. She got to live year after year after year. It took another 16, 14 years. I forget the math. uh, Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born, Hagar's son. It's not going to be until he's 99 that Isaac is going to be born. For all of these years, God allowed her to raise her child under the wealth and the blessing and the covering and the home and the resources of Abram's family. Instead of her growing and raising her child in the middle of a desert, not knowing where milk was going to come from, not knowing where you know, shelter was going to be like, not knowing any of those questions, God redirected her back to the place of her blessing. You know, often I read this story and I say, "Well, oh, Hagar left and she fled, and, and we know everything that's going to transpire as the word says. He's going to be against his brothers. He's going to be a person that is that is unique, and and, and there's going to, people are going to be against him. He's going to be against them, but he will live before the people. And we know that the that Ishmael became a father of a great nation as well. But yet, it was a person that had God's destiny inside of his life. Hagar was part of God's destiny for his plan for God's people. And God saw this slave girl, this lowly girl, and he says, I know you. I have a plan for you, I have a purpose for you. I'm going to invite the team to come. God has mighty plans that he has in store for each and every one of us. Sometimes we cause our own issues. Sometimes we get out of line. We get out of sync with what he wants. Sometimes we, we take what we have beyond what God has wanted us to experience at that moment and season, and yet God has a way of saying, hey, what am I trying to teach you in this moment? I see you in all that you're going through. I'm here for you. I care for you. I want to see you well. I see you every day the FAA air traffic organization provides services for more than 45,000 flights and 2.9 million air passengers across more than 29 million square miles of airspace that's just here in the US that's a lot of ground to cover a lot of air to cover that's a lot of flights in the air there's a lot of planes There's a 520 airport traffic control towers. There's 21 air route traffic control centers. There's over 14,000 air traffic controllers. I saw a stat that said about at the peak hour, there's over 5,400 planes in the air at the same time at that very same moment. Now stop and think about all that. Imagine having to keep up with all of those planes, making sure that they're not going to crash into each other and people, passengers are going to die. See, God sees all of it. He sees all of us. He sees you personally, perfectly, persistently. He keeps track of every detail of your life, every issue, and every circumstance. He sees you in the midst of your sorrow, your pain. He sees that high that you experienced, that success that you just encountered. He sees everything. And he makes all the calls to keep it all going in the right order, in the right way so that you don't crash and burn. He sees it all. And he guides us so that we will land safely, that we will encounter his will, his plan, so that we will go into the seasons and the phases of what he has in store for us. And so much of us following after him, discerning what he wants as he's speaking to us forever knowing that he's also seeing our issues and our needs and the bends in the road and the changes in our lives and where we're supposed to go, he sees it all. He sees what will affect every choice before we even make it. He sees it and we can believe him with confidence that because we see him, because he sees us, we can see him in his mercy. A sinner saved by grace, God sees me person who's been divorced, God sees me. A person who felt like he had no future or purpose, God sees me. A person who felt like everything was broken and nothing could change and would forever remain invisible, Elroy says, I see you. I invite you to stand with me. Just close your eyes. I feel like There might be people here today who are experiencing a season or a a time in their lives that just seems to be a little chaotic and the answers are not clear. And it seems like there's nothing anybody can say because really in reality, what can we say in the midst of crisis and tragedy? There's no words that man can say that will change the circumstances yet. To know that there's a God who sees you in the middle of that and then he says, I'm gonna take this. Even though there's pain in your life, I'm gonna bring good things out of your life. Even though this has come into your life, I'm going to bring out the good things within you that I've already embedded and deposited there. And so maybe the invitation for some people here today is just to spend some time with the God who sees you in the middle of your storm, who sees you in the middle of your issue and sorrow. And and there is nothing that a pastor can say that a brother or sister can say. You just need to sit with the one who sees you and knows you intimately and is here to encourage you but call out destiny from within you. Lay your burdens and your cares on him because he is faithful. He who knows every little detail of your failures yet still gives you his best on your very worst day, he sees you. It's what Jesus Christ did for us. And if you've never encountered that and you see, you think of this idea of a God that sees everything and that gives you tension, that, that, that makes you angry, that makes you frustrated, you know, it's something that puts fear in you, then let me just say, today you can change that. Today you can enter into a relationship with the one who sees you and say, I'm trusting that even though you see me, you still love me and care for me. Help me to experience your mercy today. Help me to live for you and live right and live in the way that you would call me to live. If that's you this morning, then I invite you to just, you know, come and pray with one of us that you would just make an altar out of this platform. For those of you who need to encounter a moment of just the Lord seeing you and your issues, Like I said, God speaks to us in many ways last week. And one of the ways he speaks is through his church. Here, come, connect and pray. Engage with others where God will be able to show you, I see your issue. Let me speak into it now. Father, I pray that you would help us. That we would encounter you in this moment. I know it's a divine moment, Lord God. some really hard pains and difficult moments. Things that some of us have felt like I've resigned to this. I've given up hope in this area of my life. I have relinquished any anticipation or expectation of a change. I've felt invisible again and again. Nothing's changing. No one sees it. God, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, move inside of these hearts and allow them to just catch a glimpse of your undivided attention. Lord, I pray your words of promise that you have spoken. What you've ordained when you saw each unformed body and wrote down every day in your book. I pray, God, that you would speak the realities of those details into your children's heart this morning. God, thank you that you see us. Thank you that you will never turn your gaze away from us. Thank you that you are for us and not against us. Have your way in our lives. Thank you.